And now, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Lent has now begun. It certainly has been an interesting way to start the Lenten season. If God wanted this to be a penitential season of suffering, this past week has set the tone. God, if you're listening, I get the point. You can stop now. At least I learned that, yes, in fact, heat, water, and sanitation do matter for my overall well-being. And now that we're through that rather unfortunate beginning, we can turn our attention to God during this Lenten season. For that is what I'd like our focus to be, on God. Last week, I set, this, I set up this sermon series by saying that we have a real need to think more deeply about God. If there's anything that gets in the way of faith, I would argue that it is our inability to make sense of God today in our 21st century view on the world. So now we get to set off on a journey over the next several weeks, a journey of theological exploration. We are intrepid theologians searching our way through the details of theology, philosophy, and science. Woohoo! Exciting times ahead. I know you're as pumped up as I am, even if that bubbling joy in you comes from having heat once again. Last week I noted that the place where we must begin in our theological journey is with our own experience. We will look at different theological systems, different ways of conceiving of God, to see how they line up with our experience of God and of the world. The place where we, where we will begin today is with process theology. Process theology is a term that I've used before in my sermons. It's also something that we've looked at in Sunday school classes. But what exactly does it really mean? What is process theology? And what does it say about God? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Any discussion of process theology begins with a look at you. Well, perhaps not just you, but a hard look at ourselves. If I asked you to describe yourself, what would you say? You might say where you were born, as in, in Boston for me. You might describe what you do for work, preacher. You might mention your role in your family, middle child. You might talk about where you live, or how you spend your free time, or what passions you have. As you begin to go through this description, you should notice a few things. First, you are a product of many factors. No one word sums up who you are. You are not simply a parent, or an engineer, or a Texan, or an Astros fan. You are a combination of many different factors that all integrate to form who you are. The interplay among these factors is complex, but they all matter. Second, who you are and how you describe yourself changes as you grow and as you find yourself in different situations. You are not the same person you were 10 years ago or even a year ago. At each moment in your life, your body, your identity, your sense of self are in flux. Change is the one constant of life. 
the cells of your body are not the same cells as, as they were before. You're constantly shedding skin cells and replacing them with new ones, for example. You might have been someone in the past who loved fast food, but not now. Now, after freezing for days and eating every bad thing in sight, it's keto for you. See, you're, you're constantly changing. A key third thing is that every identifier you might use to describe yourself operates in relation to something else, to other people and things. I was born in Boston. That means something because it's in relation to other things. Being born in Boston is different from being born in Houston. Being a Bostonian entails looking at the world in a particular way and being raised in a particular culture. All of those things have shaped me in profound ways. It's relational. But I also shape the way that other people see Bostonians. By knowing me, and by knowing that I identify as a Bostonian, you might see Boston differently. It may not shape your way of Boston, it may not shape your view of Boston in a major way, but it does shape things. Everything is in relation to other things. My identity as a middle child was shaped by my siblings and parents. My ongoing relationship with them continues to mold that identity. I'm a preacher because there are people that I preach to. And the fact that I preach to a particular group of people, you, the saints of First Congregational Church of Houston, has shaped that vocation in particular ways. Every aspect of you depends on relations to other people and things. Now, these three observations form the basis for how process theology conceives of the world around us. Some, philo some philosophical systems look for the essence of things, the unchanging nature that lies beneath the surface. They might try to discern what is the essence of me, of John. Process theology rejects the notion that people or things have a stable essence. Everything is a mix of factors that are dependent on the history of that person or thing. Let's take another example. My dining room table is not just a dining room table. It's my dining room table. It bears the various scratches and nicks that speak to its past. It used to be my grandmother's dining room table, which gives it special meaning to me. My identity is a combination of so many different things, and I keep changing as a person, and that change is influenced by others. These are the truths of life. Now, process theologians use these insights to describe all of reality. All of reality is made up of what Alfred North Whitehead called actual occasions. An actual occasion includes every discrete moment of my life. Every moment, each actual occasion, is the result of a unification, a becoming of different past moments into a new reality. Those past moments interrelate in various ways that then give birth to another actual occasion. The process of development goes on continually. Each moment in each life is made up of actual occasions. It's similar to a movie reel. 
You watch a movie, and it seems as though there's continuous action, but that's an illusion. A movie is actually a series of pictures that follow one after another in such rapid succession that they appear to be continuous. The same thing holds true for each actual occasion that constitutes your life. The main difference is that each frame of a movie is a still shot, whereas each actual occasion is made up of a series of past moments that come together and interact in a dynamic process. For example, when I walk from one end of the room to the other, that's a series of actual occasions, one on top of another, each with its own set of factors that led it to happening. It involved the neurons in my brain, the nerves that then stretched down to my legs, the muscles in my legs, the carpet under my feet. It also involves the soreness of my muscles from having gone to the gym the day before, and also the purpose that I had in walking across the room. Each actual occasion that makes up my stroll to the other side of the room is a constellation of different factors, all of which are interrelated. There is constant change, and each actual occasion contains the variety of, the, the variety of past actual occasions that affect its becoming. This constant motion, this constant development, is not limited to just our conscious actions. Actual occasions act also happen on, say, a cellular level or a molecular level. As electrons, neurons, and proton, uh, neutrons and, and protons interact in an atom, that is a process of constant change, even though the atom appears stable. Each new moment is dependent on the moment that came before. This process occurs with everything around us. Now, at this time, I can imagine you might be a little bit confused. We're so used to seeing the world through the framework of static objects that it's difficult for us to wrap our heads around a world that is, in fact, always in motion. But that is exactly what process theology asks us to do. It theorizes that all of existence is dynamic. There is no such thing as standing still. Even when you stand still, there are endless actual occasions happening. Your brain is making decisions below the conscious level not to move. Your blood is still pulsing, your body moving, your environment reacting to your presence. Everything is in motion, everything is changing, everything is relating to something else. Process theology says that is reality. This is not something you need to think about constantly. It happens on its own. You only have to admit that reality is in flux, in relation, in a constant state of becoming something else at every level. This is now where God comes into the framework. At every moment, each actual occasion has the possibility of becoming many different things. The range of possibilities for each actual occasion depends on the factors, the past moments, that go into that actual occasion. But there must be some power that is involved in the becoming of an actual occasion that draws it forward into unity. Otherwise, everything would be static. That power that draws actual occasions from a variety of factors into unity is God. 
God therefore contains at every moment all the various possibilities of each actual occasion. But there's something else at work. The world is not deterministic. From a subatomic level to the level of our consciousness, or the consciousness of higher entities like humans, there is the possibility of novelty. Each actual occasion has the possibility to do something new that is more than the sum of the various factors, the various past moments that feed into that actual occasion. The source of novelty in the world comes from an initial aim that is provided by God. God, in God's primordial nature, is harmonious, connected, related. God's primordial nature is unchanging in that regard. It's about unity, wholeness, love, and enjoyment. So the initial aim to every actual occurrence, every actual occasion, which is provided by God, prompts each actual occasion to realize itself in, connect, in, in connection, in love, in harmony, in the enjoyment based on that primordial nature of God. Now the initial aim provides the chance for novelty, for creative action, since it's not dependent on what came before. But that initial aim is only one of many factors. In the process of becoming, an actual entity may unify around a factor that is not from God. In fact, since God is only one factor, that happens all the time. Now, just in case you're not confused enough, <laughs> there is something else that matters. Because God is involved in every actual occasion, and because every actual occasion leads to new actual occasions with new possibilities, God takes on the full range of new possibilities of each actual occasion. In other words, each actual occasion changes God. God is affected by each actual occasion. So there are two natures of God in the process theology world. The first is the primordial nature of God. The primordial nature of God reflects God's un unchanging character, which is characterized by harmony, relatedness, love, enjoyment. And remember, that primordial nature of God provides the initial aim of each actual occasion. One factor in each actual occasion will help lead to greater connectedness, love, harmony, and enjoyment. That's the primordial nature of God. But other factors are involved. And actual occasions don't always unify around God's initial aim, which of course leads us to God's other nature, God's consequent nature. God is both the source of goodness, harmony, love, and enjoyment, as well as intimately involved in and actually changed by every actual occasion. This is why Alfred North Whitehead wrote, quote, God is the great companion, this fellow sufferer who understands. Each actual occasion changes God and the world and leads to new possibilities, which themselves are contained in God. At this point, I imagine you are thoroughly confused and are ready to toss all of Alfred North Whitehead and process theology out the door. But before you do that, let me give you some examples to help clarify. Let's take a, let's take a simple situation that happened to me this morning. I walked out of the door of my house and stood by my front gate. At this point, I'm confronted by a range of possibilities that all have various factors. 
The first possibility, the initial aim, comes from God. The first possibility is to turn to my left, walk to my car, and drive to the church to preach my sermon this morning. (laughs) Now, I'm assuming that possibility comes from God's primordial nature because it would harmonize with love, connectedness, and enjoyment. This preaching, I hope, might bring people together. Maybe, as you're watching it now, it could possibly foster better relations among people. It might even change someone's life and bring them closer to God. It could bring me enjoyment as I fulfill my calling. But that possibility, the possibility of me getting in my car and coming to preach my sermon, in other words, turning left outside my gate, that possibility is not the only one available to me when I stand at my front gate. I could also walk down the street to a friend's house to watch TV and skip the sermon altogether. One factor in my decision could be that my friend texted me to come over. Maybe I feel obligated to this friend since I haven't seen him in a while. All of a sudden, I have a decision to make. Then again, I might want to go for a walk just to clear my head from all of the nonsense that happened this past week. Not nonsense, tragedy and cold and everything else that happened this past week. Maybe I'm not confident in my sermon because it's full of complex theology and I, and I want to avoid preaching it. I could decide to do any of these three possibilities or others. But one of these decisions is in line with God's will and the others are not. God doesn't speak to me when I try to decide, but on a subconscious level, I can feel the lure to follow the path to harmony and love. I have free will. I can do any of those options or others that stem from the past moments that constitute the actual, that actual occasion of me standing at my front gate. No matter what option I choose, however, it will affect God because then God will be present to me in my new reality and the new actual occasions that arise. At each new reality, God will continue to lure me to love and connectedness. But God will also feel my pain, for instance, if I skip the sermon and then get fired from my job. Imagine it in another way. In all the nearly limitless options for what happens in the world, God is present. God is present because God contains and is the ground for every possible action. At the same time, God is not only present in every action, but is also one of the factors determining the outcome of an action. That is because God provides the initial aim, again, from God's primordial nature that lures everything, not just humans, towards connection, love, enjoyment, and harmony. No matter what happens, the action affects and changes God because the web of possibilities that God contains changes and God is constituent of every actual occasion. Let's take another example. Let's look at how process theologians might interpret our reading for this morning. Now, this text is the so-called Noahide Covenant, where, after the flood, God promises not to kill off all of humanity again (laughs) and provides a rainbow as a sign of that promise. Now, a process theologian would say that God did not punish humanity with the flood. God does not work that way. But God did attempt to lure humanity to prepare for the flood. Sadly, most humans ignored the lure from God 
and instead listened to other factors. They chose to party it up and dismiss, the, for instance, the gathering rain clouds as nothing significant. Now, Noah did listen to God and built the ark and saved creation by welcoming animals onto the ark with him and his family. After the floodwaters subsided, Noah saw the rainbow in the sky and correctly interpreted that as a sign of promise from God. Noah saw that God's purpose was for the thriving of all creation. Noah was someone who was good at discerning the initial aim from God in each actual occasion. Now, he wasn't perfect at it. No one is perfect at it. But he was better than most other humans. And that allowed him to work for good, to work for God's purpose. In process theology, God does not speak to humans with a voice from heaven. That part of the text is clearly figurative. But it attests to a deep reality that God is present. The text also affirms that God wants creation to thrive and work together and love one another and all creation. God's primordial nature comes through in this text. God was changed by the damage that the flood created. God did not cause the flood, even though God was involved in every actual occasion that brought the flood about. Now, I hope by this point that you can see at least the basic outlines and the allure of process theology. It provides a framework that takes into account the complexities of our identity, the reality of change, and the importance of relations. It jives well with particle physics and what we know about the world scientifically. God is not some entity out there who intercedes in the world from time to time. Instead, God is intimately involved in every moment of creation. God's action in the world does not require the violation of the observable laws of nature. God is not all-powerful in the sort of classic sense, but instead lures creation towards harmony, love, relatedness, and enjoyment. Process theology affirms free will, but also accounts for the myriad of factors that affect the way the world unfolds. Now, process thinking certainly requires a dramatic shift in the way we commonly view the world. But maybe that's a shift that needs to happen for us anyway. Now, then again, not everyone is comfortable with process metaphysics. <laughs> Perhaps this way of describing the world does not line up with your experience of it. In that case, there are other frameworks that we can use. Now, perhaps you're totally confused by process theology, but you're intrigued enough to want to learn more. And if you do want to learn more, let me know, and I can give you some excellent books to read. <laughs> this will, however, come with a caveat. Process metaphysics are notoriously complicated. Alfred North Whitehead, who invented them, literally came up with a whole new vocabulary to describe his philosophy. Then again, maybe you don't care much for process theology or are eager, or are eager for a simpler system. In that case, come back next week because our Lenten journey has just begun. <laughs>